I think it's the situation between cholecalciferol or the 25-hydroxy form and the 125-dihydroxy. The relationship is very analogous to what happens when your thyroid is low, your actual thyroid hormone. Your body increases the TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, in supposedly a reaction to normalize things. But in fact, the TSH itself is an irritant and uh, produces the bad symptoms of hypothyroidism as the TSH rises. And with a progesterone deficiency, the absence of progesterone is one problem, but the fact that when progesterone is low, your body increases the luteinizing hormone, and the luteinizing hormone is pro-inflammatory and creates degenerative symptoms. Anytime the basic functional hormone or material is low, the body goes into an emergency reaction in which at the same time that it's uh, trying to correct deficiency, it's turning on a substance such as 125-dihydroxy-D or luteinizing hormone or thyroid-stimulating hormone, which in the process of adjusting has lots of dangerous toxic side effects. In the case of 125-hydroxy-D, these unwanted side effects include obesity and osteoporosis. Welcome to the Win at Life podcast, a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can break free from restrictive diets and build a body and life you love. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and your host for this episode. And today we're joined by a good friend, Kate Deering, author of How to Heal Your Metabolism. For those who listen to the podcast, um, you'll know who uh, who Kate is. And if you haven't read her, her book, I highly recommend that you read it. I'll drop a link in the uh, in the show notes uh, with a discount code, so you can um, either buy it from us or you can buy it on Audible. You can pretty much buy it any, anywhere. But today we're also joined by Dr. Ray Pete. We had such um, great feedback from the podcast that we did with him uh, a few months ago, so we thought we'd get him on again to talk about vitamin D supplementation. Yeah, and so we got a series of. Um, uh, 30 questions from everybody that we want to talk about. And I kind of what I, I want people to think about when they're listening to this podcast, because there's such controversy between vitamin D supplements or to take them to not to take them is you need to see the viewpoint of what each argument is coming from. And what we've kind of realized is if you're kind of an anti D supplement, you're, you're viewing the organism as um, maybe calcium is bad. And that, you know, if you are highly calcified that you need to reduce calcium, thus re- reduce vitamin D, which if you're looking at through it through that lens, that would make sense. However, in the bioengineering viewpoint or pro-metabolic view, we see calcium quite differently. And we see calcium is very metabolic. And if somebody is calcified, it's normally because they aren't getting enough calcium and that usually parathyroid hormone or prolactin is increased to pull the calcium from the bone and that's creating the calcification. So we actually want more calcium from our diet, thus vitamin D would be supportive in helping us uh, become less calcified. So I think it's important to kind of think of those things as you're listening to this podcast. Again, we're not here to tell you what you should think, take everything in and and decide for yourself. But ultimately, um, I think it's a a good uh, explanation of kind of why vitamin D supplements aren't as bad as many think. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. And uh, we'll get straight into it. Hello, Dr. Ray Pete and Kate Deering. We've had uh, 
Dr. Pete on the podcast previously and I was just telling him how much awesome feedback we got from that and it's the most downloaded podcast we have on the Win It Life podcast and everyone was saying the information was just so valuable and it was really easy to understand. Um, so, yeah, Dr. Pete, thanks so much for doing that that podcast. I, I, yeah, I just had trouble with my uh, sound system. Uh, can you hear me now? Yep, we can yep. hear you perfect. And obviously, Kate, everyone knows Kate Deering. She's been on the podcast a million times. We always have a joke. It should be the Kitty and Kate show. <laughs> Kate Deering, author of How to Heal Your Metabolism. So, um, yeah, we just wanted to do a podcast about vitamin D supplementation, didn't we, Kate? Because I, I think there's just a lot of confusion out there about it. Yeah, Kitty and I go back and forth. And I know in, in the community, there's a big discussion on, you know, whether you should or should not supplement, who should supplement, when you should supplement, or is there other things you could possibly do versus supplement. And so uh, Dr. Pete was very kind to come on here to, to offer some clarity. And I have decided, you know, I was going to ask him 7,000 questions. I've limited to about 30. So <laughs> we thought maybe a 24-hour podcast wasn't going to be a good idea. So we'll, we'll do the best we can to make it as clear and easy to understand as possible. Awesome. All right. Well, let's just get, let's get stuck into it. You, you've got the question, or should I ask the first question? Yeah, go ahead for that first okay. one. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll uh, cut the ribbon. Um, Dr. Pete, can you please explain how vitamin D3 is utilized in the body? What is its purpose? Um, is it a vitamin or a hormone? Uh, those are questions that, that uh, the, the best researchers are just now starting to ask. Uh, for a hundred years, uh, people were treating it as just a calcium regulator, uh, just a bone builder, a tooth builder, and so on. Uh, and their idea of calcium regulation uh, was very limited. Uh, when you uh, realize that calcium is involved in every possible cell reaction. It's everywhere in everything living, and it's a crucial regulator. And if vitamin D is mainly a calcium regulator, then that says the field of vitamin D activity is as broad and complex as the whole life question. Uh, so what's happening now in vitamin D research is just a, a few dozen people, mostly, uh, starting to realize uh, what the real issues are. Uh, and uh, so that the field is very open and, and uh, expanding uh, with really interesting stuff happening. Uh, for example, when you look at it evolutionarily, uh, it, happens that, it happens that fish uh, don't really depend very much on vitamin D. Uh, some experiments uh, starving fish totally for vitamin D. Some of them developed spinal defects, but some didn't. Uh, living in the ocean, uh, minerals are very rich. And, and it happens that even though uh, fish are generally extremely high in vitamin D content, uh, they don't pay much attention to it. Uh, 
it's very hard to create a, a vitamin D deficient fish. And uh, much of the fish metabolism of vitamin D is getting rid of it. They, they accumulate it primarily from the food they eat, uh, the plankton, uh, mostly the uh, animal zooplankton. And so it's, it's just a, mostly a, a waste product for the fish. And if you think of the cave fish, the, the blind cave fish, uh, there, there's no way they get sunlight or even plankton that has been in the sun. And still they, they manage somehow to have bones and to, to be alive and so on. The, the, uh, apparently caves generally being the result of, of water, uh, carbonic acid in water dissolving away uh, limestone. Uh, cave water is generally very rich in minerals, especially calcium. Uh, uh, so uh, they are an example of uh, uh, vitamin D-free vertebrate uh, that gets along uh, with just calcium instead of vitamin D. Uh, so the, just real quick. So I, I, what, I, what I hear you saying is, are you saying that vitamin D can actually be produced in a being without sunlight? And it seems that a high mineral content would be very important to the production of vitamin D? I, 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 no, the cave fish seems to illustrate that the, the organism doesn't really need vitamin D if it has lots of calcium okay. and experiments with various uh, fresh and, and uh, seawater fish uh, show that they have a, a very limited need for it. The, the uh, abundance of calcium has made them handle the whole vitamin D issue mostly as a, a waste product of uh, e eating the, the plankton, uh, which uh, uh, the cholesterol is converted uh, to cholecalciferol uh, by uh, anything exposed to the sun. Uh, and if, if you eat the uh, material containing cholecalciferol, it's as if you're taking a, a vitamin D supplement capsule. Uh, and when you yourself are in the sunlight, your cholesterol is exposed. Uh, ultraviolet light gets all the credit for the conversion of, of our cholesterol to cholecalciferol, but fish experiments show that even incandescent bulbs can activate the conversion of cholesterol to cholecalciferol. And even injecting irritants into the skin can uh, produce the uh, conversion of cholesterol to the pre-vitamin D or cholecalciferol. Uh, so it looks as if the production of pre-vitamin D or cholecalciferol is a defensive mechanism. Uh, cholecalciferol itself uh, does a whole range of protective anti-stress antioxidant 
anti-radiation uh, protective uh, uh, defensive uh, processes. So just for the listener, can you basically let them know, I mean, that the, the supplemental D is essentially cholecalciferol, correct? Uh, uh, yeah, it's pre-vitamin D, uh, the same stuff that fish eat uh, and that we get uh, out of fish. Uh, uh, and if you think of, of uh, people who were in the sunlight constantly uh, producing their own conversion uh, of cholesterol to uh, cholecalciferol, uh, they, were, uh, they, they didn't need any from the environment. But when you move to the north, the only way to survive more than uh, a season or so is to uh, start eating some organism uh, that still is in the sun and still producing cholecalciferol. Uh, so you either have to uh, live on the coast and eat fish or uh, uh, eat animals which have been in the sunlight. Uh, so so the, uh, the, the, when you're near the equator and have round the year sunlight exposure, uh, then then you can uh, uh, be, be a vegetarian theoretically uh, with, without uh, the risk of a, a vitamin D deficiency. So to kind of conclude that, I mean, what about c consuming other foods that are high in vitamin D like dairy? Would that be oh, also oh, supportive? Oh, yeah, the, the cows were in the sunlight and so they produce the same uh, material exactly that, that fish produce by being in the sunlight or by eating uh, algae that was in the sunlight or zooplankton that was in the sunlight. Okay. So you're saying that any animal or meat or food product that is actually getting sunlight would uh, give some sort of vitamin D to a person? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, except uh, the... A healthy person, after that gets into your bloodstream, as they call it, calciferol, with its own whole range of protective effects, your liver hydroxylates it on the number 25 carbon, and that produces the uh, what, what we know and measure in the blood as vitamin D. It's what some people have called the storage form of vitamin D, but uh, that doesn't really uh, mean much except that the liver uh, does uh, bind uh, enough of the 25-hydroxy uh, 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 uh to last for a few months, uh, and uh, some of it is bound uh, on proteins such as uh, calbindin uh, or the uh, calcium binding protein, and uh, it passively uh, dissolves, uh, uh, being fairly fat-soluble, it dissolves into our fat tissues uh, a moderate amount, about the same concentration that you find in the bloodstream. Uh, uh, so the bigger you are, uh, the slight, slightly greater amount is stored in your uh, uh, fat uh, tissues besides what's in your liver. And that uh, 
conversion to the hydroxycholecalciferol that happens in the liver can be blocked by a liver problem. So a person with a sick liver is going to have probably enough of the plain cholecalciferol, but have have a very low level of the 25 hydroxy cholecalciferol. And when you're low, very low in that form of, of the half activated vitamin D, especially if your calcium intake is limited, then you will activate your kidneys. The traditional story goes that under stress, a deficiency of either 25-hydroxycholecalciferol or calcium will cause your liver, your kidneys, to produce one hydroxy, one 25-dihydroxycholecalciferol by activating the one hydroxylase enzyme in your kidneys. But in actuality, any inflamed or stressed tissue has that ability to make 1,25-dihydroxycholecalciferol. The old textbooks say it happens only in the kidneys, but actually any stress tissue seems to be able to do it. Uh, uh, cancer cells, uh, for example, are very good at, at the one hydroxylation, which makes the so-called active uh, uh, vitamin D. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wind it back a second because that was a lot of information and just kind of try to summarize it so that people can kind of understand. And because there's so much terminology, as we know, in in the, in the D world, um, there is obviously D3 or cholecalciferol, which is the the starting supplementation form, and then it does get converted into the 25 OHD or the calci the calcidol um, or what they refer to as stored. And maybe that we'll use that term if that's okay. Cause I think that's probably easiest to understand. doesn't mean that that's its only form but it, that's what it's kind of known in, in, in the language. And then it does convert into the active D. And I think what you kind of just explained was that the stored D converts into the active D under stress. It's not that that is the active form is what is where the active metabolites and all the good stuff is. It's that it actually converts when the tissue or when the system is under stress. Is that correct? Um, yeah, it, I think it's uh, the situation between cholecalciferol or, or the 25-hydroxy form uh, and the 125-dihydroxy, the relationship is very analogous to what happens when your thyroid is low, your actual thyroid hormone, your body increases the TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, uh, uh, in supposedly a reaction to normalize things. But in fact, the TSH itself is an irritant and uh, produces the uh, bad symptoms of hypothyroidism as the TSH rises. And with a progesterone deficiency, uh, uh, the 
absence of progesterone is one problem, but the fact that when progesterone is low, your body increases the luteinizing hormone, and the luteinizing hormone is pro-inflammatory and creates degenerative symptoms. Anytime the basic functional hormone or material is low, the body goes into an emergency reaction in which it, at the same time that it's trying to correct the deficiency, it's turning on a substance such as 125-dihydroxy-D or luteinizing hormone or thyroid-stimulating hormone, which in the process of adjusting has lots of dangerous toxic side effects. In the case of 125-hydroxy-D, these unwanted side effects include obesity and osteoporosis. For example, when the conditions are stressful enough, your parathyroid hormone increases and it's the major signal for turning on the one hydroxylase enzyme that so-called activates the vitamin D. And when you're dominated by parathyroid hormone and the consequential 125-dihydroxy-D, then you start breaking down your bones and turning off your oxidative metabolism, blocking the electron transport chain and creating the conditions for lactic acid production, spreading inflammation, degeneration, and activating the storage of fat, creating fat tissue and storing energy in it. All of the emergency things are activated by the stress or inflammation that leads to turning on parathyroid hormone. And the main two things that will keep your parathyroid hormone down and under control and stop all of those degenerative processes, the main things are calcium and vitamin D, the 25 hydroxy form. Okay. So essentially what you're saying is the 125 or the active form as a lot of people call it uh, D is basically prone and it, and it, and it gives all the inflammatory high levels of 125 D are not good. And that's when you get a lot of the inflammatory responses, uh, weight gain, elevated lactic acid. And so high PTH turns that on. And so the only things that are going to parathyroid hormone, the only things that can actually directly lower the parathyroid hormone are calcium and the 25 or the store D or just taking a D supplement or sunlight or whatever. Is that correct? Um, yeah. And lots of supportive things like sugar, keeping your, your energy up and preventing fat metabolism, the stress of too much fat in your diet suppresses the sugar metabolism and and again, turns on all of those uh, pro-inflammatory processes. 
So essentially keeping the body out of stress. And so the elevated 125D is just a, one of the many responses your body can adjust to when under stress. And that right. would, gotcha. Okay. And so that's just the first question. So we could be here for four days. Um, <laughs> that was super awesome and helpful. And I'll, and I'll kind of, kind of goes into this next question is, uh, how is getting vitamin D from sunlight different from getting it from a supplementation? Are they metabolized different differently? Or is it there at some point in time where they are, they are at the same space and it doesn't matter where you're getting them from. Uh, you, you get other good effects from the sunlight, but basically as far as the vitamin D is concerned, uh, I, I think they function uh, identically uh, uh, along with the sunlight. Uh, you're getting visible light, which is another thing that activates oxidative metabolism in support of, of the good kind of vitamin D. Gotcha. So there, obviously there's a lot of other benefits of the sunlight. I guess one of the things is that we know that usually most people can't, they won't overdose on D by getting too much sunlight, right? Our body has an innate response. It will stop deproduction once we have enough, if we're in the sun. Correct? Uh, yeah. For, for, for example, you start tanning better uh, when you have enough vitamin D, uh, uh, you protect yourself uh, more efficiently by uh, starting to produce the melanin pig pigment, but the vitamin D itself has an anti-radiation effect. So you don't even notice, you don't sunburn nearly as much when, you're, when you have enough of the cholecalciferol in your tissues. It's like a radiation resistance factor. Okay. So for somebody that as, I mean, I definitely have people say that they no longer can tan any longer that when they go out into the sun, they just burn. So would that be a sign that they are low D? Uh, yeah. For, for most of my life, I, I would sunburn uh, very, very easily. Uh, just driving in a closed car uh, through a bright landscape, uh, my, my face would get bright red. Uh, and I would have a, a shiny red nose uh, from just a few hours of exposure sideways through the windows of a car. Uh, and uh, that, that isn't a very big dose of ultraviolet, but I was super sensitive to it. Uh, and after I started supplementing vitamin D, I could spend hours outside in Mexico at an altitude of uh, seven or 8,000 feet uh, super intense radiation and not even get a, a red nose. Hmm. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that you were not able to get the needed sun or the vitamin D from the sun where that would help build up the, the supplementation is what worked for you? I, I just didn't uh, uh, apparently uh, uh, stay in the sun long enough, gradually enough. Uh, once you get the a protective level of, of vitamin D up, then it's easy uh, to go ahead and uh, reach a, a very high level, uh, which ha has the, the full range of, of protective uh, anti-stress effects. But uh, once, once you're deficient, uh, the fact that you sunburn so easily uh, tends to make you avoid the sunlight. 
I see. So it's essentially like everything else in this planet that you need to build up. So it's a training mechanism to build up your vitamin D levels and your ability to withstand sunlight. So it's just a, if you did it slow and steady, it would work. It'd be just as effective than actually having a supplementation. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to go back to when you were talking about the, the 25 D or the, the calcidiol also known as a store D and I think in, in a lot of the other communities that talk about it, they, they say it is in an inactive form and that this inactive form just can't have any sort of uh, response in our system, that it's only the 125D that actually has the, any sort of response. And I know you certainly told me that the, the calcidiol or the, the store D does actually have active form and that's the one that actually produces all the good stuff in our body. Can you give us a little more detail about that? I, yeah, the, the decisive experiments that show that uh, were the uh, receptor knockout experiments. Uh, the, the, uh, the vitamin D receptor supposedly responds uh, to uh, the, the 125 dihydroxy. Uh, but if you knock out that receptor, uh, the 25 hydroxy uh, does all of the same functions. Uh, so neither the receptor nor the 125 uh, uh, dihydroxy uh, is, is essential when you have calcium uh, and the 25-hydroxy. Uh, and, and there are knockout experiments with the 1-hydroxylase too, similar results. So that kind of goes back to Gilbert Ling's theory that, that it's not just about this receptor idea. And I know they kind of talk a lot about the VDR, the, the vitamin D receptors in the um, anti-D supplement group. And, and essentially what you're saying is that that doesn't matter? Uh, uh, yeah, the, the whole cell, the whole organism, in fact, is the real receptor uh, because every receptor is sensitive to context. Uh, and if you take out the so-called uh, specific protein that's named the receptor, still you have the whole context. And it turns out that the receptor is just like a, an extra leverage point for getting the quick, easy change of the physiology. But as long as you have a living cell in a whole organism, then the specific receptors are just a part of the story, not at all the whole picture. So essentially the environment that the cell in has plays a huge role in how the cell reacts to certain substances? Uh, yeah, the, the cell is always orienting itself uh, to its environment. Uh, and uh, when you produce an organism without the receptor or the one hydroxylase, uh, uh, other things take take over and uh, fill in uh, for the lack of that particular thing. I see. Okay. So <clears throat> I guess just for context, it's, it's good to know that the, the cell will respond differently depending on the environment that it's in. And if the body is healthier, it's going to respond differently than if the body is unhealthy. And if it's under inflammation and is, you're not giving it enough sugar or enough other things, that cell is going to react very differently than one that is properly supported, good thyroid function, and so forth. 
Uh, yeah, that's the high energy state of the cell, uh, which is stable uh, and uh, essentially in a resting and, and readiness condition. Uh, uh, if it's lower in energy, uh, then uh, uh, any slight disturbance can, can throw things off. But uh, the, the uh, cell is more oriented and ready to handle its environment uh, when the whole system is well energized and well fed. Gotcha. So what about the belief that a vitamin D supplement is actually immune suppressive? So some people report that they feel better taking a vitamin D supplement. And then one theory is that, well, the reason you feel better is, is because it is suppressing your immune system. Is what's happening is it's just suppressing the 125D and, and that's what's making you feel better? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's part of it. Uh, part of the, the confusion is uh, the, the definition of the immune system. Uh, people talk about wanting to stimulate uh, the immune system, but uh, I think that's uh, the last thing we, we want to do. Uh, the, the immune system, uh, it, it means uh, whatever we do uh, to uh, a damaging uh, threat, uh, some kind of injury, uh, the, then we say that the immune system has been activated. But a very healthy organism, for example, with lots of calcium and vitamin D, doesn't even notice it, it isn't harmed uh, by the presence uh, of the pathogen. Uh, so the immune system isn't activated uh, by the really healthy uh, organisms. For example, 98% uh, of, uh, of the really healthy people don't mind having the COVID virus. Uh, it, it's a minor uh, uh, irritant or disturbing effect uh, when your cells are, are in a stable, highly energized condition. It's only the borderline uh, low energy inflamed condition uh, of old age or uh, existing sickness uh, that, that makes something like the COVID virus or, or a bacterium or uh, whatever, a, a fungus or a, a toxin and so on. Uh, the body doesn't get damaged when it's in a healthy, energized condition. Right. So... I'm going to take a little turn and, and say um, there are some researchers that are utilizing like a really low vitamin D status to address autoimmune issues. Um, and they're saying that if they suppress the D status to well below 12, that they're actually getting responses where people are recovering from an autoimmune issue. Is there some explanation for that? That would be the Trevor Marshall people. <laughs> that would be them, <laughs> correct. I don't like to even call it reasoning. It's uh, the application of an engineering uh, metaphor to biology. Uh, and uh, an electrical engineer, for example, uh, thinks in terms of hard wiring and switches and the flow of current and so on. Uh, and so uh, the idea of uh, receptors uh, 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 and uh, 
the uh, innate immune processes and all of that fits very well with an engineering orientation. And a lot of, if not all of Trevor Marshall's ideas are based on what he calls computer modeling. And in 2006, he referred to the Omi Sartan and similar angiotensin receptor inhibitors mm-hmm. called them antagonists of the vitamin D receptor. But then in 2017, he was calling them agonists of the vitamin D receptor and saying they restored the vitamin D receptor function. And what they empirically are doing with a mild dose of minocycline, it happens to be a very effective anti-inflammatory agent as well as an antibiotic or antibacterial. And the sartans, only sartan or low sartan, those are very basic, effective anti-inflammatory agents. And so when you're talking about autoimmune and degenerative diseases, both anti-inflammatory agents, minocycline and omisartan, are going to reduce the symptoms. And I don't think they have any particular either antagonist or receptive or restorative effect on the vitamin D receptor. So, so yeah, Trevor Marshall uses, I think it's Benicar to treat a lot of his patients, which is a, uh, an angiotensin two receptor antagonist blood pressure medication. But what you're saying is it, that it may be not even the, the suppression of vitamin D that's making the difference. It might just be these medications are making the difference. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think he presents any evidence at all uh, that it has anything to do with the vitamin D receptor. Uh, it was originally based on uh, so-called computer modeling, uh, no experiments really. Uh, and, and then he changed his uh, from antagonist to agonist. And in, in fact, the sartans in general uh, uh, are very powerful anti-inflammatory protective agents, uh, regardless of whether it's rheumatoid arthritis uh, that's the problem or, or COVID in, infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a general uh, all-purpose anti-inflammatory protective substance. Right. I remember you talking about losartan being used in in COVID and helped people get through COVID. So I would imagine that these other ones would work as well. Very interesting. Um, okay. <clears throat> so flipping again, could, could stored D status be a sign of sickness? Meaning if somebody's D is low, um, does that mean that they are sick or does that, or like another argument is, does, is it actual need for more D or is it just a sign that they may be sick and that restoring their health would correct their D? 
um, if a person is taking large amounts of a vitamin D supplement and or getting sunlight and still they're circulating 25-hydroxycholecalciferol, if that is still low, I think that means they have a liver inflammatory problem because the liver is a major part that creates the 25-hydroxy active form. But I think most of the background of the question has to do with the Trevor Marshall's doctrine that there are occult organisms inside cells causing sickness and that his protocol is the way to eventually eliminate those occult organisms. So let's say somebody was taking a, a decent amount of D or getting sunlight and had, like I said, low D level still, their store D was qu quite low. What would you at that point recommend? Would you say continue to take more D or is there something else that we need to look at? Uh, yeah, the, the whole picture of what could be uh, the source of inflammation and liver injury, uh, but uh, uh, taking vitamin D isn't going to make the problem worse the way the uh, Trevor people, Marshall people say uh, it will. Okay, so at that point, what about for somebody who takes uh, a D supplement and it makes them feel absolutely horrible? What would that be? I've been hearing from a few people who were deteriorating rapidly. One thought she was approaching death with neurological and all kinds of other symptoms. And I looked at her diet and supplements, and she was supplementing things in a base of medium-chain triglycerides. And when she stopped everything containing MCT, all of her symptoms went away. And uh, uh, there's one study in which uh, in animals, uh, they found that a peanut allergy, for example, uh, was created in the presence of MCT. It affects the immune system uh, on the lining of the intestine in a way that uh, d destroys our ability to uh, resist uh, antigens and allergens uh, and makes us susceptible uh, to uh, food allergy symptoms. That's interesting. I mean, the one supplement I usually recommend is Carlson's and that is in MCT oil. So you were saying to avoid the ones in MCT oil, or if it's, if it is creating an irritation, it could be the oil might, you might be okay. Are they okay to have in MCT oil? Is there one that you know of that is good that is not in those things? Uh, lots of people get benefit from them, but uh, I think uh, uh, some of the intense bad reactions uh, uh, stop happening when they use a, a olive oil uh, base vitamin D. There are several companies that make a pure olive oil and vitamin D product, either in drops or capsules. Okay. Do you happen to know any offhand that we I can don't remember. reference? No, I don't remember. Uh, just look for the price 
they vary tremendously in, in cost. Okay. So a, a vitamin D in olive oil would, would be where to try if, uh, if you are currently taking a D supplement and having a bad reaction and you I also think have so. low, low D status. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> what about, let's kind of flip into maybe talking a little about the calcium and D um, kind of communication and how they're all intertwined with each other. And so, well, I'm going to go back real quick. Um, if somebody has low D, could it also mean other things? Meaning I certainly read some research showing that just taking magnesium can raise store D levels. So it, would it make sense for someone um, to actually explore other avenues before taking a D supplement? Like looking at some of the cofactors that go into uh, vitamin D metabolism? Uh, uh, yeah, for example, including milk and cheese in your diet is a good uh, first step to, uh, to see whether it might be a calcium magnesium deficiency. Uh, because those, both of those have a, 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 both, both an activating and a stabilizing uh, a protective potentially sedating action, a quieting effect on inflammation, for example. So a deficiency of either magnesium or calcium can lead to the inflammatory condition that activates the 125-dihydroxy-D. Okay, so just being low right? In calcium or magnesium will initiate an inflammatory response, which will pull the 25 or the stored D down and will elevate your 125 active D numbers. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So <clears throat> our, here's an interesting question. Are high cholesterol levels and low vi vitamin D status correlated since cholesterol is the precursor for D? Yeah, in old people, uh, for example, uh, the, the vitamin D that is active in the skin is greatly reduced, and uh, 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 that, that shows that uh, the, the uh, uh, cholesterol uh, uh, is a major reason uh, that uh, uh, aging reduces vitamin D production. They, they just aren't putting the cholesterol in the position uh, to be activated by sunlight. So we, then it would be fair to say that possibly taking a statin or any cholesterol lowering medication is certainly going to affect your vitamin D status? Uh, uh, yeah, it, it affects everything, including <laughs> vitamin D status. Okay, so that would be certainly something to look at. Would it be more something if your cholesterol was high, would, the, would you first look at something like thyroid function or uh, uh, mineral yeah. deficiency? In the 1930s, in the 1940s, uh, hypothyroidism was very commonly diagnosed by elevated cholesterol and over and over, uh, experimenters, both in people who had had their thyroid gland removed and in animals, showed that thyroid reliably uh, lowers uh, 
cholesterol as it increases the metabolic rate. It's a very predictable uh, event. So the whole uh, hypercholesterolemia uh, uh, culture uh, grew up uh, along with the suppression of the existing knowledge of thyroid hormone function. So essentially, if somebody is uh, high cholesterol, I mean, not, not that you need to take a thyroid, but obviously improving thyroid function, whether it's for proper diet or de-stressing, that alone without even taking a D-supplement could improve their D-status. Uh, uh, yeah, the thyroid and vitamin D and calcium are, are intimately interrelated. Uh, you, you can't separate the thyroid from the vitamin D and, and calcium metabolism. Gotcha. Okay. Um, what about, can we actually store enough D for the winter months? Is, is that the, what the summer is all about? And essentially for those people that obviously don't have a lot of summer months, are they going to be able to get enough D during those months so that we'll take care of them during the winter? Or for those people, is it pretty evident that they'll need to be taking some sort of supplementation or certainly eating foods that are certainly high in vitamin D? If they have really been in the sun during the summer, uh, they will, uh, assuming that their liver is fairly healthy, uh, their liver is going to store uh, enough for several months of the darkest part of winter. Uh, but it, it really depends on how much time they spend outside during the summer and also how uh, good their thyroid status is uh, and their general uh, metabolism, but yes, uh, the, the reason eating fish liver or, or beef liver or whatever is a, a good source of uh, uh, vitamin D is that the liver does store a considerable amount of vitamin D. Okay. So kind of getting on that. So would you, and I know you've gone um, and said kind of good and bad. So would you say that cod liver oil would be an okay way to, to supplement vitamin D? Um, except that it comes with a, a considerable amount of fish oil. Yes. And fish oil over time tends to accumulate with pro-estrogen effects, pro-inflammatory, pro-aging, anti-thyroid effects. So I don't think it's the best way to get your uh, vitamin D and vitamin A, but it is a, a, a source in an emergency. Right. Uh, better to uh, use cod liver oil than to uh, be deficient in vitamin D. Right. But something like beef liver or whole milk would be better options. M much better. Okay. And what about, let's say, milk that has been fortified with vitamin D? Is that safe? The uh, choice of emulsifiers, uh, I'm not sure how much latitude there is, but I've heard that polysorbate 80 and polyethylene glycol uh, have been used uh, as emulsifiers for the vitamin A and vitamin D. And uh, since some people are very allergic to those polymers, uh, 
uh, you have to uh, be, be watchful. If you have an allergic reaction to milk, uh, try a, a, a milk that hasn't been uh, uh, supplemented, which uh, usually means buying whole milk, uh, which hasn't been pasteurized. Uh, then you can skim it uh, to uh, reduce the uh, very high fat content of the whole milk uh, and uh, get an unadulterated uh, natural milk. Right. And uh, that's one thing I certainly remember. I mean, over in the States, we know that all low fat milk is, uh, is has additives of A and D in it. I don't think there are any that don't, that are low fat. And I, I know you consume a lower fat milk. Um, and I usually consume a milk like Strauss where you can actually skim the fat. Now, if I was a skim the fat, aren't I removing a lot of the A and the D that I'm trying to get? Uh, yeah, uh, but um, a moderate amount, like one or 2% fat uh, is uh, all you need for the vitamins if the cows are healthy. Okay. Okay. And then you, I know you use a lower fat milk. Do you have a, a brand that you prefer that seems to do okay for you? Uh, no, I just get whatever tastes good. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, some of the organic milks have a really bad taste, uh, and uh, that means their cows were eating some kind of odd wheat that I don't like. Uh, so I go by the taste. Okay. So, the, so does your grocery store kind of let you taste test? When you, that would be nice <laughs> if we could all like you know, it like going to a winery. You could taste your milk before you purchased it. That, that would be nice, but I, I just uh, don't buy it again when it tastes too bad. That's probably good advice. <laughs> Katie, what do you do for your milk? Are you are you still there? I am still here. I um, We drink low-fat milk. Craig likes skim milk because he drinks. I think skim is what the equivalent, because you guys call it different things. We call it low-fat. Yeah, so you've got 1% and then... Yeah, he drinks the like the really low fat one because he drinks loads of milk. I drink the low fat, but we're so lucky over here. We don't, they're not fortified with vitamins, mm-hmm. which is so awesome. So, yeah, we just get them from our, there's just a couple of local um, dairies that we support that we get our milk from, um, which is really good. But yeah, I, feel, I really feel for all our American and overseas clients because they're always posting about how they just can't find milk, low fat milk without the added vitamins. Yeah. So I think the takeaway is, you know, you can either buy a milk that's full and try to skim the fat or, mm. you know, try other ones. And if they taste good, you know, and, and you don't have some sort of reaction to it, then it's a good milk. But some people I find when reintroducing milk, that whole seems to be the easiest route because they seem to tolerate the best, at least in the beginning. So mm. um, that's my general advice on that. Okay. Uh, still got a bunch. So everybody put on their seatbelt. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so Ray, <laughs> when we measure the stored vitamin D or the calcidiol, uh, in the blood, is, is this an accurate number? Because I always hear about there's certain things like estrogen and iron that, you know, really doesn't matter what's in the blood. It's because it's in the tissue. Is, is this a similar case for stored D? Cause there obviously is a lot in the tissue as well. Um, uh, no, uh, the, uh, circulating in the blood, you have the uh, vitamin D binding protein, uh, as well as the uh, uh, lipids in the blood that are carrying uh, a large amount of it. Uh, so uh, it, uh, the fat tissues 
passively uh, uh, act as storage, <clears throat> but uh, at a level uh, not much higher than in the blood. Uh, and uh, when it's in the uh, uh, muscles, nerves, and so on, uh, uh, no, no one <clears throat> has measured the uh, extracting those uh, uh, vital tissues uh, to see how much uh, of, uh, of the 25-hydroxy is inside uh, the, the cells. It's assumed that the cells will uh, take up uh, according to what they need, uh, uh, probably very similar to the blood level. I see. I think you once told me that if you are have a, a good amount of body fat on you, though, won't your body store more of that D in the tissue? So maybe your numbers won't be as high, and that might also be to, due to a liver issue? Uh, the, the level in the fat tissue corresponds pretty closely to the concentration in the blood. So if you have a very big volume of fat tissue at that same concentration, uh, then, yeah, that will uh, act as a storage uh, sup supplementing what's in your liver. I see. I see. So let's talk about the optimal number of your store D. Like what number? Because obviously some people promote that anything above 20 doesn't make any sense. And there's no biological reason for you or advantage to be above 20. And obviously I think you promote more of a 40 to 60 number. So what would you say? Obviously that is what you would say, but why would you say the number needs to be higher and, and the reasoning behind that? One of the functions is to keep your 125 dihydroxy D as low as possible by keeping your parathyroid hormone low. So having excess calcium in, in your diet and a generous amount of the 25-hydroxy D, that is acting as sort of a buffer against any of the irritants and inflammatory de-energized conditions that would threaten to increase your parathyroid hormone and 125-dihydroxy. So you're... Go ahead. The practical level, like improving sleep, for example, and being resistant to sunburn, uh, that pretty much happens above uh, 50 nanograms uh, per milliliter. Uh, 50 to 70 uh, seems to be uh, the safe range where it's acting as a buffer uh, to, to reduce stress generally. And what about like, people, I mean, can you go too high? I mean, obviously you're not going to go higher than that if you're if you're getting natural sunlight but if you were supplementing i mean what what dangers are there if you if you go to 80 or 90 or 100 um people working outdoors for example as a lifeguard uh, have uh, measured uh, 130 nanograms per milliliter and higher uh, and there's no harm uh, evident at all but uh, with a, a moderate overdose of one 25 dihydroxy, you can easily create hypercalcemia, calcification of, of soft tissues, 
demineralization of your bones uh, and other degenerative signs. Uh, so that as long as uh, your calcium intake uh, and 25-hydroxy are in that range, uh, uh, I, I don't know of anyone who has had uh, uh, 200 nanograms per milliliter, but uh, no matter how much sun exposure uh, you get, maybe 150 uh, NG per ml uh, would be a, a, an upper healthy limit. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's the keeping, keeping the 125 down, preventing the parathyroid hormone from creating the degenerative inflammatory processes. So, I mean, I've read research that will show that a, that there are healthy people that actually have a low 25 D store D also a low 125 D and that would be a healthy person. And it's the unhealthy person that has uh, a, a elevated or low 25D, but then a very elevated 125D. I mean, can you be healthy with a number of 20 for a store D number? Uh, temporarily. Uh, I, I, I just think the, uh, the long range outlook is better when you're in the higher range because you're uh, uh, at, ha having a buffer effect actually of, of uh, 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 an excess uh, uh, beyond what's e essential of calcium uh, and 25-hydroxy. Uh, it, uh, uh, it gives you the opportunity to uh, undergo some stress uh, without tearing down your bones uh, and calcifying your ar arteries. Okay. So for someone that maybe doesn't have a lot of stress in their life and, you know, is living inside, but not really very stressed, that could totally work. But obviously in today's modern society with a good amount of stress, that would not be an ideal number to be protected for the long haul. Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about the vitamin D kind of calcium connection. And because obviously I know you definitely, uh, your big, things that you'd like to promote are thyroid, calcium, vitamin D, and how they all intertwine with each other. Can you just give me a brief synopsis of how vitamin D and calcium and thyroid all affect each other? Um, keeping the uh, uh, calcium bound up so that it doesn't act as an excitant to cells. Uh, the, the danger when your energy is low or inflammation is high is that calcium uh, becomes a cell uh, exciter, uh, activates a, a breakdown of protein, uh, uh, nucleic acids, and uh, the, the activation of all of the processes that lead to eventually cell death or loss of function uh, and uh, the, the uh, vitamin D uh, uh, of the right sort is functioning uh, to ac activate the proteins uh, that hold uh, vitamin D in a safe condition uh, and in that condition vitamins 
or calcium is working with progesterone and thyroid as cell stabilizers, having actually a sedative effect, an injection of calcium salts can act as an analgesic and as a sedative by promoting the stable, relaxed conditions. Simply being low in energy or having inflammatory signals will activate the improper functions such as calcification of your blood vessels and other soft tissues. And that's where 125 dihydroxy becomes a danger. It has a brain excitatory effect, which can, can seem very good momentarily, but at exactly the same process that makes it a brain excitant, makes it a blood vessel calcifier by, by destabilizing the relation between calcium and the structure of the cell. So I, I think one of the confusions about calcium is because you always hear about people are calcified and calcified arteries and blood vessels and their tissue. And so people are constantly being told you don't need any more calcium. Everything's calcified. And can you kind of explain what is really happening so that we can understand that obviously we don't want to be calcified, but is it due to the fact that somebody is eating too much calcium? Uh, uh, no, uh, it's the same situation with uh, kidney stones. Uh, people who uh, don't eat enough calcium uh, uh, or, or don't get enough of the right kind of vitamin D uh, tend to get cal uh, calcium uh, uh, kidney kidney stones. Uh, and uh, the, the mechanism seems to be that uh, your parathyroid hormone uh, increases, uh, your uh, aldosterone uh, and uh, whole uh, inflammatory system uh, increases. Uh, the, the angiotensin system uh, becomes uh, activated uh, and the, the excitation uh, goes with uh, uh, unopposed phosphate action. Uh, if you have too much phosphate in your diet, uh, that activates the, the uh, calcification process partly by uh, a direct solubility effects inside cells, but mostly uh, through activating overproduction of parathyroid hormone. Uh, so uh, when you talk about getting extra uh, uh, protective calcium in your diet, uh, that means relative to a uh, uh, somewhat lower uh, uh, phosphate in your diet, uh, because both of those effects uh, will lower your parathyroid hormone and the, the angiotensin system and adrenal stress hormones, uh, uh, all of which uh, uh, protect the uh, uh, blood vessels and other soft tissues from calcification. Uh, injection uh, of uh, the, the 125 dihydroxy uh, will have 
exactly the opposite effect or, or uh, an overdose of parathyroid uh, hormone uh, activating the uh, 125-dihydroxy. Uh, will pull calcium out of your bones, give you hypercalcemia, uh, and uh, create crystals uh, of calcium and phosphate uh, inside your uh, living cells, causing them to uh, first become uh, excited, uh, overactive, stress, uh, producing uh, excess collagen, uh, excess nitric oxide, uh, and uh, a whole process of, of degenerative uh, damage uh, leading to uh, formation of, of bone fibrous hardening uh, and calcified fiber. So it's essentially the opposite. So it's not due to ingesting calcium that's creating the issues. It's essentially a lack of calcium and a high phosphorus diet that's triggering the parathyroid hormone to pull calcium from the bones. And then that is what essentially is creating all this calcification. Uh, uh, yeah, it's been known now for decades that uh, women with the worst osteoporosis have the most calcified uh, blood vessels. Gotcha. And so obviously, and this is obviously why you definitely promote a high calcium to phosphorus diet, which essentially is a high dairy diet and low grain and meat diet. Is that uh, yeah. the primary reason? Uh, yeah, grains, legumes, nuts, meats, and fish uh, all uh, can create an excess of uh, phosphate in the system, uh, activating your parathyroid hormone. Uh, and uh, during the night, just the stress uh, of the darkness of a single night it increases your parathyroid hormone. Uh, and uh, the, if you measure the calcium output in the urine uh, of a person who is developing osteoporosis, most of the day's calcium loss is in the morning urine uh, because of the elevation of parathyroid hormone uh, uh, during the night, breaking down the bones, uh, putting, uh, making you relatively uh, hypercalcemic, uh, hardening your arteries and other tissues. Uh, and so, uh, especially at bedtime, uh, uh, milk and, and vitamin D uh, are, are protective against this constant nocturnal loss of calcium. So just another reason to have milk and honey before you go to bed to help right. with that process. Mm -hmm. um, is that one reason why people are always so stiff in the morning? I, 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 yeah, lots of inflammatory things develop during the night. Uh, if you look at all of the uh, blood changes uh, within about an hour or two, or, or, or by, by the middle of the night, all of the degenerative uh, uh, stress uh, uh, hormones have increased. Uh, free fatty acids, uh, which uh, uh, are, are toxic to uh, all, all of the cells by interrupting your uh, uh, oxidative uh, uh, use of glucose, the, the free fatty acids rise 
steadily during the night, uh, along with uh, cortisol, uh, uh, serotonin, estrogen, uh, 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 angiotensin, parathyroid hormone, and uh, all, all of the uh, things that take take our tissues apart. So that's essentially why we're trained to, to sleep at night, right? To go into the least stressed position that we possibly can because of all of these uh, things that are happening in our system just based on the darkness? Uh, yeah, people have had their blood tested every 15 minutes uh, uh, while either awake during the night or uh, while asleep during the night. Uh, and if you are... are soundly sleeping during the night, uh, you'll have a, a moderate increase of the stress hormones. But when you're not sleeping, uh, the darkness is uh, several times more destructive. Uh, all of the stress hormones rise uh, more quickly when you're not asleep. Uh, so sleep is our uh, uh, obviously adaptive reaction to uh, avoiding those stresses. Right. So if you're a shift worker and have to stay up at night, probably something that would help you would be uh, milkshakes and milky drink or high calcium foods or so forth to help kind of support the system during that nighttime. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, everything that protects against the shift to uh, fat metabolism of free fatty acids, uh, the 125-dihydroxyvitamin uh, D, uh, is uh, able to turn off uh, the oxidative metabolism, causing a shift over to the uh, fat-dependent metabolism and a shift to the cancer metabolism producing uh, uh, lactic acid. Hmm. Why do you think that the doctors do not take the 125D test. I mean, do you think that would be more helpful to people to understanding their own vitamin D status if they had both 25D and 125D taken? Um, uh, yeah, the, the really useful test is the uh, 25, uh, 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 the, the uh, uh, unconverted form. Uh, and some doctors uh, measure the uh, uh, 125 uh, 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 dihydroxy. Uh, and uh, if they don't realize that that's an indicator of more of stress than a vitamin D adequacy, it, it can be a, a good indicator of a vitamin D deficiency when your parathyroid hormone and 125 dihydroxy uh, are increased. But, right. So, uh, uh, oh, just so if you are going to like, if you were really wanted to understand somebody's vitamin D status, what would be the labs that besides 25D and 125D what you, that you would have them take to get, to get a really good understanding of where they're at? I, I think the 25-hydroxy uh, is a good enough test uh, for uh, almost all purposes. Okay. So they wouldn't even need to get like parathyroid hormone. Basically, if, you're if your 25D is low, you need more vitamin D or uh, sunlight or you need to get out of stress or a combination of all those? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, there, there are surgical uh, uh, companies, uh, websites that, that are adding to the confusion 
by saying you, you can't lower your uh, uh, parathyroid hormone uh, uh, by diet or uh, other metabolic effects. You have to have your parathyroid hormone, uh, uh, parathyroid gland cut out if you have excessive parathyroid hormone. Uh, but uh, uh, the, there are these forces actively misinforming the public, uh, uh, flatly saying that you, you cannot lower parathyroid hormone by eating more calcium and vitamin D, uh, but uh, that's absolutely not true. Right. Yeah. And I also saw studies that just removing phosphorus or eating a low phosphorus diet can improve um, parathyroid hormone. So. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, well, that is pretty uh, well recognized as a cause of the increasing uh, degenerative disease in the population is the high ratio of phosphate to calcium uh, in the diet in the uh, uh, industrial world. Yeah, that, yes. So that's most people eating a high meat, grain, legume, nut diet, and all avoiding dairy and eating their nut milk. So that would be the uh, perfect place to, to have low vitamin D status. Right. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so I real quick, I want to get back to just how vitamin D is metabolized and, and talking about the other cofactors, the other minerals or nutrients that are involved in that. Um, certainly there's a lot of talk that if you are to take a vitamin D supplement that it will deplete or use a lot of other nutrients like vitamin A or magnesium, potassium, copper. And so if somebody is already deficient in magnesium and copper and vitamin A, would it make more sense to address those issues first before putting a D supplement in? I don't think so. It's actually important to work on all of them at the same time, but the vitamin D itself is part of the calming anti-inflammatory process. So the calcium and magnesium are essential and should be done immediately, but I don't think the vitamin D supplement is going to make anything worse. Yeah. Well, one of the conversations is if you increase vitamin D, you're going to increase kind of the burn rate of a magnesium and even vitamin A. And if you're already deficient in those, and since we know that vitamin A is very integrated in iron metabolism, that that could actually make iron get more stored in the tissue or can dysregulate iron, but also knowing that magnesium is involved in 3000 other enzymatic processes that by giving someone a lot of D and I'm, and, and I think what you're saying is you just need to do it all together, but obviously just giving someone D and not doing all the other things, you could create a problem. I, I think that idea comes largely from uh, uh, 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, some animal experiments showed that if you give a, a very large amounts of vitamin B1, thiamine, Mm -hmm. uh, that you you will increase the uh, metabolic rate, uh, and if you're borderline deficient in others, it, it will uh, make the other deficiencies show up more quickly. Right. But uh, I, I don't know of any experiments at all uh, that would show that happening uh, with 
uh, vitamin uh, D or uh, uh, magnesium or calcium. Uh, to a great extent, uh, uh, the body can uh, uh, use uh, uh, the, the boost it gets from one uh, nutrient to reduce its need uh, for the other nutrients, uh, uh, such that uh, uh, even uh, ad adding sodium or potassium can reduce your need uh, for magnesium or calcium. Uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, simply the alkaline uh, um, mineral uh, ion uh, has a certain uh, uh, interactive uh, e equivalence. Uh, and uh, the uh, vitamin A and vitamin D uh, do work together, uh, but uh, uh, you would have to be in a, at an extreme, uh, uh, desperately deficient condition before you'd uh, see one uh, uh, creating a deficiency of the other. Okay. So what you're saying is even though vitamin A is needed in the vitamin D metabolism, it really wouldn't matter if you started supplementing even somewhat high dose of D, it wouldn't throw off your other nutrients if the other ones weren't being supported at the same time, unless you were extremely deficient in them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And vitamin A and thyroid have a noticeable interaction so that if you're on, if you're borderline for thyroid function and take a huge vitamin A supplement, such as 100,000 units, you will probably experience a dip in your thyroid activity because thyroid hormone and uh, retinol travel on the same protein. Uh, right. uh, and so you'll uh, uh, simply displace one by too much of the other. But uh, that is noticeable only in extreme situations. I see. Um, I had a thought and then it left my brain. So we'll go to the next question, which is, should people ever take a calcium supplement or are they harmful uh, no they should get it from uh, food but uh, uh, for example uh, uh, eggshells uh, or powdered uh, oyster shells uh, you, you can think of it as a food uh, if, instead of throwing away the uh, the shell of the egg uh, why not powder it up and Add it to your omelet. It's a, in a in a form that is very assimilable for by most people. So, a calcium carbonate, I don't think is is a problem to use as a calcium supplement. But some of the counter ions have their own activity, so you don't want to take. Uh, uh, very big doses uh, of uh, uh, calcium lactate uh, or uh, calcium gluconate, for example, uh, just because that counter ion uh, uh, can have its own metabolic action. 
Okay. So taking a food supplement like eggshell calcium, which I know I, I certainly recommend, I know you recommend because it is actually a food um, that is safe to take. Is, is there any way you should take that? I've always, you know, read that calcium is better absorbed with sugar or also vitamin D. So is it, would it be smart to take that with something like orange juice or with food? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think with the whole meal, uh, uh, so that you don't no notice uh, any uh, highly purified substance uh, tends to uh, disturb and irritate your stomach and intestine. Uh, mm -hmm. And the calcium, <clears throat> high concentration of calcium carbonate uh, it can be irritating. There's like too much salt or, or sugar uh, in a concentrated form is irritating to the membranes. Okay. So anytime you're going to take a calcium supplement, hopefully food source, eat it with your entire meal so that you can get everything together because it can be an irritant. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, when you separate out the major uh, nutrients, uh, the intestine is most efficient when it has the most complex uh, mixture of, of the major nutrients, the protein, fat, and carbohydrate, for example. Uh, if you eat only one component at a time, uh, your intestine doesn't uh, recognize it as quite proper food. And so it's not as efficient at absorbing uh, any of the uh, uh, ingredients. Uh, your, your intestine wants a, a complex, natural uh, sort of mixture of nutrients. Right. I think there's always an argument that calcium carbonate isn't absorbed very well. And would you just say if you consumed it with your complete meal and with some sugar that it would absorb much better? Yeah, it becomes calcium chloride in the presence of stomach acid. I see. I see. Okay. Is there any issues with, obviously, you know, I always think milk is a perfect food because it comes with all of the other cofactors like vitamin A and D and uh, magnesium, all the supporting agents are all together. And I feel like that's, you know, kind of how mother nature meant it. And so when you do do something like a supplement, um, is there ever a problem to, you know, just how your body will take it in? I've always read if you do too much calcium, you're going to lower your potassium and you'll just throw off your minerals. Is that, is that going to happen or will your body kind of figure it out? Uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 receptor idea leads to a lot of those worries that are unnecessary. The cells and the intestine and the body in general are very adaptive and basically intelligent about adjusting what it takes in so that it isn't very easily disturbed. Okay, right. Because I've heard in circles that if you ingest too much calcium at certain, that somehow it can have a thyroid suppressing effect. And I think it's because it was going to lower potassium and other minerals. And, I, and I'm hearing that that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, yes, that started, I think, with some pharmaceutical experiments in which they found that taking a thyroxin supplement at the same time uh, you take a calcium supplement or, or drink milk, slows the absorption of the thyroxin. Uh, but uh, the, the, a lot of pharmacists are uh, obsessed with the idea of quick absorption. Uh, 
But in the case of thyroid, for example, slow absorption is what you want. And with most nutrients, slow, steady absorption is the best for your system to sort out and use properly. Okay, perfect. What about, you know, you always hear about certain ratios of minerals. And one in particular that I've heard of is this calcium magnesium ratio where, you know, you hear, hey, you need to have almost 10 times as much calcium to magnesium or, and then I've also heard the reverse where the the magnesium should be much higher than the calcium. Are you just going back to the entire, back to that receptor theory that does that matter? Do, Do we need to be aware of something like that? Or should we just eat whole foods and not worry? <laughs> Basically, yeah, the, the body can sort out a great ranges of proportion between calcium and magnesium. And milk has quite a lot more calcium than magnesium, but a pure milk diet you can't become magnesium deficient because uh, milk has more than enough uh, magnesium uh, if you're uh, getting an adequate calcium supply from it. Okay. And, and that kind of brings me to the, my next question that, and then just so everybody knows, we're almost to the finish line, which is super exciting, but I, this has been so interesting. Um, I think a lot of people get this idea of this imbalance of minerals because they're using a diagnostic test, like a hair mineral, uh, hair tissue mineral analysis test. And I think you get all these ratios on this test and say, oh, look, you're high in calcium or you're high in this. Is that a good test to understand the minerals inside of us? Um, no, it's a good test of what you wash your hair with. <laughs> uh, okay. the, the hair uh, and just uh, being uh, in a dusty environment or a chemically polluted environment, uh, you, you can tell where a person has been by smelling their hair because it, it binds uh, things so easily and it, it will pull things uh, out out of the water uh, uh, with, with a moderate amount of, of calcium uh, in the water. Uh, your hair is going to bind a lot of calcium. But if you have softened water with lots of sodium in it, uh, then your hair is going to experience a high sodium uh, rather than calcium uh, environment. Uh, uh, Experimenters years ago compared toenails to hair uh, and found that toenails, uh, by being uh, constantly uh, protected and a thicker uh, material uh, than hair uh, is much more representative uh, of your uh, actual tissue mineral levels. But still, your toenails take uh, about six months uh, to get long enough to clip off. Uh, and uh, so the hair is, is convenient. Uh, and if you clip it uh, close to your skin, uh, you can get hair that has only been exposed to the environment uh, for several days, uh, but still uh, just uh, one one shampoo uh, with hard water is going to fill your hair with calcium or magnesium. What about hair pulled? What if they pull the root? Would that make a difference? 
Um, uh, yeah, if you measure just the, the knob on the end. You would get more. Would it still be an accurate, even like I said, if, if you were able to use the hair that hadn't been uh, altered by water or air, would that hair be a good analysis of the minerals uh, uh, in your body? Uh, the, the water gets pretty far down the hair shaft. So it would have to just be the, the very knob at the end. Okay. Is, is there any good test outside of ripping your toenail off? That sounds a little painful um, <laughs> of actually checking minerals in your body. I mean, is, is blood acceptable? Would that give you some understanding? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, if you include uh, uh, all of the blood cells, uh, uh, that's going to be a, a very accurate and repeatable uh, a representative of your mineral content. So what tests would those be specifically? Because that's obviously not a normal test that your doctor's going to do. Are you, are you talking about the, the red blood cells? Uh, what's in those? Uh, um, a, a chemist would just uh, uh, dissolve the whole, whole thing in an acid or alkali, uh, and just measure the the mineral content in an absolute sense. And you're referencing the blood, though. That it would be uh, uh, yeah. Measurable in the blood. Yeah. Okay. So, but if I wanted to go to my lab and then I wanted to know all of what my minerals were, would it? Would, I mean, because I can go get copper or magnesium, or is it red blood cell magnesium, or like what? Where? What? What would it would it be that I would uh, actually buy from a lab? Uh, well, if they're separating uh, your, your uh, uh, serum uh, and cells, centrifuging it and so on, uh, th then you're only going to be measuring uh, one component uh, of the blood. Uh, and uh, th then you have to uh, know how that component is reflecting what's in the rest of the body. Uh, so, so if you have a, a very good standard, uh, th then... A any particular component uh, is going to be altered uh, uh, according to the condition of the body. Uh, but uh, if you want to know the, the general body uh, uh, status uh, for minerals in general, I think the whole, whole blood uh, uh, homogenate would be the appropriate thing to measure. Okay. Um, I had a real a question real quick, and it was coming from what does it mean if somebody has excessively low parathyroid hormone? Like, I, I think that they are probably taking uh, enough vitamin D and, and uh, calcium and magnesium. So you're basically saying it can't really get too low. Like, uh, yeah, if they're it, lower it, than their norm number, then you're good. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, except uh, when you surgically remove uh, the parathyroid glands, uh, uh, if you keep, keep them supplied with uh, magnesium and vitamin D, uh, uh, they generally are remarkably healthy. Their sleep improves. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, remember that aging is a constant increase in parathyroid hormone. And the parathyroid hormone every night rises 
and accelerates the aging process. Uh, so it's something that get, gets worse the older you are uh, and exacerbates the problem. Uh, and uh, so the, the good benefits of parathyroidectomy uh, in uh, people with kidney disease, for example, uh, are very impressive. Hmm. So basically, that is the explanation as you get old, everybody, well, not everybody, but people under stress, certainly you see a lot of osteopenia, a lot of osteoporosis or kidney stones starting to occur. And that's just a sign that the system is under stress. Correct? I, I think so. Right. Um, real quick, a question about magnesium. Where would you recommend people get a source? Um, would you get a food source? And obviously there's a lot of people that, you know, use a lot of magnesium. Is, is magnesium something that most people should be taking since we're all under stress and we're losing it daily? Uh, uh, milk is a very generous source. Uh, uh, coffee uh, uh, is a consistent source. It's a small amount, but it can help as a supplement to the milk. Uh, orange juice contributes a, a moderate amount uh, of meat and fish uh, and the high phosphate foods uh, uh, always contain a considerable amount of magnesium. And if people don't feel like they're getting enough, should do you think they should supplement? And if they, they should supplement, is there a preferred magnesium source that you would tell is a better source? Um, years and years ago, I experimented with magnesium carbonate. I had used it for in Mexico as a counteraction of tourista diarrhea. And I always had a little block of magnesium carbonate. And a doctor friend was complaining about her horrible uterine cramps. Uh, and uh, she normally uh, wouldn't uh, consider a, a nutritional supplement, but uh, since she uh, was it pretty much immobilized by uh, the discomfort of the cramp, she was uh, willing to uh, take a chunk of magnesium carbonate and chew it up. And in the, just about five minutes, she looked down at her abdomen and said, I can't believe it, they stopped completely. Uh, and it can have uh, that almost instantaneous uh, effect of uh, uh, working the way calcium does uh, as a quieting uh, influence, but it can be very quick and reliable. But the trouble is that uh, many of the manufacturing methods uh, uh, for uh, magnesium carbonate and other magnesium compounds, uh, they involve contaminants uh, that can be allergenic. Uh, and lots and lots of people uh, get a headache or uh, uh, wheezing, uh, allergy symptoms of a variety of, of types uh, from using magnesium supplements. Uh, uh, magnesium glycinate, uh, so far I haven't heard uh, any serious complaints uh, from that form of it. 
Yeah, that's that would be the one I prefer. And, and I don't know, have you ever tried the magnesium bicarbonate? I know people who use it and like it. Yeah. Yeah. Th those seem to be, I think, the, the least harsh and the ones that people don't complain. Obviously, I, magnesium carbonate, I think, to a lot of people acts as a good laxative. So I think things start moving quickly. And I don't know if it's that. Is that because of the carbonate or is that just because of the additives they might have in the carbonate? Um, magnesium itself, at a certain level, uh, it, it works as a laxative. Uh, uh, if it's anti-inflammatory, uh, sometimes the uh, the bowel is uh, being paralyzed by inflammation, uh, and, and so something which is uh, uh, anti-spasmodic uh, can uh, let the normal paracelsus take over. Gotcha. Uh, well, that is all the questions I have. I don't know if you have anything else to add, Ray. Uh, that was a lot of amazing information. Um, I don't know. Do you think we, we hopefully covered most of it? Um, yeah, I, I don't think of anything else. <laughs> and well done in an hour and a half too. I'm, it's, I'm, I'm surprised. I thought it might take like two and a half hours. <laughs> I, well, you know what? As I was going, I started to realize we had covered a lot of these other questions. I was like, okay, we kind of covered that. And I'm like, all right, we covered that. <laughs> so start I was getting a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, was, that was awesome. That was so, so good. And, you know, like when we did the one with um, Georgie and Kate and um, Matt and Danny, I think people were just a bit confused. I think this will be much easier to understand, which is good. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, um, Ray. I'm sure uh, everyone will love this podcast just as much as the last one. So much valuable information. And thank you so much, Kate, for putting all those questions together, all those thorough, super thorough questions. Um, so I guess maybe just to finish off, Kate, <laughs> so are we pro-vitamin D? Well, I think at the end of the day, as Ray said, I mean, I think that if you are actually low vitamin D, that it's, it would be, as you say, it's not a harmful substance to try. And I, and I think Ray would agree. I mean, you have to take an excessive amount to really get a harmful effect. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I, I've never known a, a person or even a study of the 25-hydroxy-D uh, causing harm. Uh, uh, like 5 million units continued for a period of time probably can be harmful, but I've never run across anyone. People with rheumatoid arthritis, when they feel a slight benefit from five or 10,000 units a day, some of them have gone up to 20,000 or more units per day and not only get complete re relief, uh, but uh, tend not to have a recurrence. Uh, so uh, the big doses uh, are uh, pretty consistently uh, therapeutic. And uh, once you get the uh, inflammation under control, then you don't need uh, to keep uh, uh, such high doses. 
Right. I just had a thought because I, I've certainly read studies that have shown that people, you know, they've taken them over time and I can't remember the study, but it was, they, they gave different dosages of vitamin Ds to women. I think it was like 400 IUs, 2000 and 10,000 IUs, and then followed them for a significant amount of time. And then, then found at the end of this study that the ones that were taking the highest amount of D showed more bone loss than the other ones. And do you have some explanation as to why that could occur? Um, no, I, I would have to see the, uh, uh, the details <laughs> of the study uh, and uh, hope it wasn't done by a, a, a Marshall uh, disciple. Uh, Marshall one of the, it might have uh, been. Yeah, one of the funny things in his 2017 publication uh, was he was connecting uh, not only the uh, uh, restorative effect of vitamin of androtensin blocker on the vitamin D receptor, but he was incriminating electrosmog, which isn't a good thing, but he was incriminating that as a factor in the vitamin D receptor malfunction. And he recommended a silver thread cap as a way to protect the brain from the electrosmog uh, and uh, help your vitamin D receptor. But uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, probably uh, there is a shielding effect from uh, uh, silver threads in the cap, but why not the whole uh, uh, old-fashioned uh, aluminum hat, uh, uh, aluminum foil hat, which is an absolute brain shield. Well, maybe we'll have to get that study over because uh, there are some out there that I that I sometimes wonder, and I'm sure there might be something in the study that would explain it. And I just I didn't know. So um, that was awesome. And so, yeah, I think that the, the takeaway is if you're going to get vitamin D, get some in olive oil. Yeah, we'll have a look. Should we have a, I'll have a search. See if we can find some brands because I've never really seen any brands in olive oil. No, they're mostly, I think, yeah. find in the MCT oil. And most people I know don't have an issue with that, but I'm sure, as you say, they, they could. I'd certainly have had people tell me they, they definitely have some very strong reactions with vitamin D and they just cannot take it. So it could be that MCT oil. Hmm. Well, we can drop the link to the Carlson's and try and find some olive oil ones as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pete. Thank you so much, Kate. And awesome. I'm sure we'll, we'll probably think of some another awesome topic to have Ray on again. <laughs> I hope so. Ray, it was such a pleasure to talk to you and let me pick your brain for that long length of time. I totally appreciate it and enjoy it. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. It's fun to think about the, the, the subject. It's uh, uh, an area that it is going to get more and more interesting as more research opens up what the vitamin D is really doing. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. Anytime. Great. Well, Thanks so much. Have a great day guys or evening. I ah. should say. Bye. Bye. Bye.